Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28 as we continue the book of Isaiah. And as we pick up where we left off in Isaiah 28, we'll be looking at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this passage right here in the middle of the book of Isaiah, we come to another passage yet about you, our Savior. Remind us, Lord, that it's not about us. That we are not the center of the story, but you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict our hearts of that. That you would lead us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that you would lead us to obey your word. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, when I was in high school, there was a friend of mine, Sean, you guys have met Sean, I think. I call him Hulix. Uh, this is a whole other story. But, uh, Sean... Uh, I was at his house, like most weekends I was at his house, and it was really cold this particular weekend. It was like when it was going to be below zero, which is kind of strange for this part of the world. And for some reason it was really cold in his house as well, like just abnormally cold to be inside. But anyway, we didn't think anything of it. We were just gearing up for this night that was going to be really cold, and so we were gathering all the blankets in his house, and it was me and Sean... And we're both pretty big guys, and his brother, Chris. And after we looked around, there were really only enough blankets for me and Sean. And Chris, being the small guy, lost out on that. And so, uh, of course, we did the reasonable thing and told him that he, you know, he's just gonna have to rough it. That so, uh, he raided the coat closet and the towels, and he used those as blankets which I could almost just lose it laughing just thinking about it back then because we were 15-year-old kids, but it was I still remember it so vividly. Of course, Sean and I slept very cozy that evening, and Chris uh, struggled. He barely slept. He said the towels were never quite wide enough. They were never quite long enough. And so you can picture this, this kid kind of kicking at towels and coats, and he, he actually had a coat around his legs as well. It was just pitiful. Um, you can't stretch out a, a towel. You just can't do it. It's never going to be long enough. I think we've all probably had that situation where we got a blanket that wasn't quite right, and we're like, you just can't sleep. It's horrible. Yeah, I didn't really feel bad for him then. So anyway, and that just shows a little bit more of my character to you. But uh, in our text today, there is a verse that made me think of this story. And it is at the crux, really, of how the southern kingdom, Judah, reacted to the coming of Assyria. They were grabbing at just about anything to cover them up. Instead, of course, of the one thing that could permanently cover them, trusting in the Lord their God, they were grasping at anything else. And so we're going to look at that issue today. We're also going to look at the second part, really, which is about this parable about farming. And it was in a time where farming was a very important part of their economy and their culture, just like it is ours, really. Uh, the Lord quickly makes it about his relationship with Israel. 
dealing with Israel, he has, of course, the northern and southern kingdom. We looked at the northern kingdom last week. He's scattered those people, and now really his people are who? People of every tribe and tongue and nation. So how can then the Lord act as a righteous judge over the nations today? Does he have to do this as a one-size-fits-all, or does it particularly tailor to each one of us as believers? We're going to look at that. As we consider this passage, I'll look at three main ideas. Israel's covenant with death, God's plumb line justice, and then God growing his garden. And so with that, let's look at the text together. Isaiah chapter four, or chapter 28, starting at verse 14 and through the end of the chapter. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hell will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, and day or by day and by night it will be a sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim. As in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do this deed. Strange is his deed and to do his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard the decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled his surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat, put the wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed as God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rode over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. One does not crush grain for, or does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, or with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So 
So just as a real, real quick review from last week, the first part of chapter 28 deals with the judgment that is placed on Ephraim or the northern kingdom. The judgment was against their prophets and their priests, as we saw, those who were drunkards, and they thought that Isaiah had nothing to teach them, and we read quite the opposite. This week, judgment is on the southern kingdom, or Judah, and it is largely coming to them in light of the judgment on the northern kingdom. Verse 14 starts with, therefore, and so we should go back to the previous passage. Isaiah was a prophet to that kingdom, the southern kingdom, and so he would oftentimes use the northern kingdom as an example of something we don't want to do, and that's exactly what's happening here. Because judgment is coming against them, the south, now you should listen, because it's coming against you as well. The south doesn't easily escape from this. They don't get out in many ways. Their crime is worse than the one in the north, at least in the northern kingdom that was full of pagans. And so they kind of, it was kind of their excuse. Not that paganism is an excuse, but you wouldn't expect people to act like anything other than that. But for the southern kingdom, these were people who still said they at least follow the Lord, but they're showing that they don't. So their hypocrisy is going to shine forth in our passage today. And that brings us to the first point, Israel's covenant with death. Look with me there at verse 15. <clears throat> Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. So can you imagine, this is the people of Israel, or the southern kingdom, and they're saying, hey, we're good because we've made a covenant with death, we've made an agreement with the grave, We've taken all these lies and we've we've made them our shelter. So we're okay. Isaiah is obviously uh, mocking them here a little bit. The covenant that is being referred to is believed to be the covenant that Israel or the Judah made with Egypt. Egypt, remember, was another nation that was pretty nearby. And Israel and Egypt have had some dealings in the past. As there's whole books written about that uh, in the Bible. And now Israel, Judah is going to Egypt to seek refuge from Assyria, which was not a good thing for them to do. Judah hoped that Egypt would come to their aid when they were attacked because, you know, Egypt always follows its promises, right? That's not the case at all. Judah had forgotten their history, and Egypt really only ever looked out for itself continually. And so who had they made a promise with? Someone who wasn't going to keep their promise. Their refuge was lies and their shelter was falsehood. That's what he's getting at here. And you get that in the second part of verse 15. It's one thing. It's the thing that you know is false. And we've all done this. We know it is false, yet you believe it. Maybe if you just believe it enough, it'll just work itself out. You know it's not a good thing, but if you just believe it hard enough, maybe it'll work. It never does. Because you didn't deal with it. And oftentimes what happens, if the situation is just going to get worse. We can put this in many different situations in our own life. Judah's reliance on Egypt only shows that they are not convinced that God is going to do what he says. 
But did God say, I'm going to keep my people safe. They will always be my people. He's not, they're not convinced of that, so they're going to go down to Egypt. And God has already shown what he can do with Egypt, if it so pleases him. But they're going to go down to Egypt so that, because Egypt is better, a better choice than their God. <clears throat> I mean, if you just look at their history, how many, I mean, you know these people in Israel, in the southern kingdom, they knew their history as well. If you just read through their history, particularly through the wilderness wanderings, how many times do you see the same kind of discussion where God is in their midst, God is taking care of them, yet they still want to go back to Egypt for some reason. The place that they were enslaved and the place of their this horrible time that they had been. I'll give you an example of that. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. When I find myself complaining about life and about the, the hand that I've been dealt, sometimes I will go back to this passage and read it because it's so ridiculous. It must be how we sound when it comes to the Lord's blessings in our lives. Numbers chapter 11. So just a bit of context here. <clears throat> Remember, the Lord was with the people of Israel as they were walking through the wilderness. He was providing them food every day. He was giving them guidance as they walked through the wilderness. They were escaping Egypt and they were going into the promised land. And yet, what did they can do? They continued to complain. Verse 4, Numbers chapter 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving... And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Now remember, they're being fed every day in the middle of the desert by the Lord himself. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This manna was a gift from the Lord. They walked outside their tents in the morning and there was food on the ground. That's not normal, by the way, to do that, particularly in a place in the world where there's just not very much food or any sort of growing anything. And so they complained because the only thing they had is the thing that the Lord provided for them. And it wasn't enough. And we've all read the story. We know we know what those days are like and what they were like. These are the same people that saw the plagues in Egypt, that saw the entire Nile River turn to blood, that saw all the frogs and the flies and the whole sky turn dark and they saw all those things. These are the people that saw the Red Sea stand up on its end and they walked through on dry ground and now they're saying, Lord, we wish we could go have some more onions and garlic, and melons. It sounds pretty ridiculous when you say it that way because they're not convinced the Lord's taking care of them at all and now they want the things that they left behind in Egypt, including the slavery that they left behind. I love the word picture. Again, this is what I used for my introduction that Isaiah gives us for those things that we're trying to trust in other than the Lord. Verse 20 of Isaiah 28 For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. It's like trying to lay in a bed that's too short, trying to cover up with a blanket that's too small. And he's using this against Judah. 
because they trusted in Egypt to deliver them. And Judah knew, just knew it. They just knew that Egypt was going to save them. They just knew it. They had made a covenant with them, and Isaiah calls this a covenant with death. They took the lies that Egypt would tell them, and they used them for their pillow and their blanket at night. And it amounts to the big teenage boy covering up with hand towels. It just doesn't work, and it looks pretty ridiculous. This has been a common theme in the book of Isaiah, but I think you understand because it's a common theme in our own lives, is it not? It's hard to trust in one that you can't see. We all get that. And it can be very tempting, but that is our faith. That we trust in the unseen, that we have an assurance in things that we hope for. And so then how does God handle those who trust in those things to, to save them that won't? That leads us to the next point, God's plumb line justice. Verse 16. Therefore, because Israel has done this, because Judah has done this, therefore, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This uh, be in haste is probably not the best translation there of the Hebrew, the New Testament Authors who quote this passage, both Peter and Paul quote this passage in their own letters, rather than put to shame, they say, or rather than be in haste, they say, will not be put to shame. Paul quotes this in Romans 9. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 2. We'll go back to 1 Peter 2 in a moment. Verse 17. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. God speaks of this standard of judgment. He will judge according to justice and righteousness. And we know what the outcome will be. And over and over in this book, we have seen that same sort of thing. Judah has been slammed over and over again for their lack of righteousness, for their lack of justice at all. It's the righteousness of God that will be used to sweep this refuge of lies and this covenant of death that they have made a way to remove it. And he mentions a plumb line. If you're not familiar with a plumb line, it's an older tool, but it's still one that many carpenters still use. And the plumb line basically is this piece of metal that always points to the center of the earth. It shows you where this a true sense of gravity or what true vertical is, what up and down is. It always points to the earth's center of gravity. And so when you're building something, what do you want that structure to be lined up with? Do you want its center of gravity to not be aligned with the center of gravity of earth? Obviously, that would be a bad plan for any sort of structure. You want it to be structurally sound, and so you build it according to the earth's center of gravity, and you make everything nice and straight. The way that the Lord is dealing with the structural problems that are going on in the house of Judah is what does he say? The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters will overwhelm the shelter. He's going to just wipe them away. He's not going to fix the thing that they have built. He's going to destroy the thing that they have built. And that is how he plans to fix it. Verse 18, the last part of 18. 
When the scourge passes through, you will be beaten down. And it seems really strange that the Lord would take something that was already there and beat it down in order to fix it. And the text even talks about that. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up to do this deed, strange is his deed, and to do the work, alien is his work. And what is his work? To take this people that he has built up from nothing and to beat them down, back down to the ground. It is a strange thing. But what is the, what are they being broken down to? What is there when you remove the building? What is the foundation? Verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. Todd read from Psalm 118 this morning of what that cornerstone is. The New Testament writers speak of it often. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. This precious cornerstone. The Apostle Peter had the great fortune of living and walking with while he was on this earth. This precious cornerstone, of course, is our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to Him, as you, the church, come to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, it's almost as if Peter had read Isaiah 28, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, As a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Oh, look, he did read Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they are destined to do that. So in Christ, as believers, we are being built up upon him as our foundation. There's, that's the only sure foundation that there is out there is Christ. There's nothing else. Everything else is like building your house upon the sand. Jesus talked about that, did he not? When the rain comes, what happens to that house? It gets washed away. There's nothing to hold it up. And then how does Christ become our sure foundation? So the honor is for you who believe. It's belief in him. Belief that he is the one. What about those who do not believe? Then what does that rock become? It's not like the rock goes away. The rock doesn't go anywhere. But that rock becomes a stumbling stone. A rock of offense. And this is important in a day when Jesus is is pictured oftentimes as this cosmic Santa friend who wants 
us to be happy and wants us to live our lives as we see fit. And he only wants things that we want. It just happens to match up with us. It's incredible. No, he wants you to obey his word. That's what he wants. And those who don't, they stumble over him. He is the absolute standard of righteousness and justice. And to stumble over him isn't to simply get up, dust yourself off, and walk away. It's to come face to face with your creator, the one who made you. To look him in the eye and say, no, you're wrong. Rather than do that, call upon his name and be saved. Believe that he will save you. Believe that he can save you. He will do it. You do not want to stumble over him in that last day. You want him to be your foundation. For Christians, we have a sure foundation and a sure way to measure the righteousness and justice of anything ever. And that's his word. It's the word of God that is the plumb line of righteousness for the Christian. We take this for granted in our church, I think, and even in our denomination where we anchor everything according to the word of God. And I think we do a good job with that and we want and we try. We want to do that. It may make us look a bit odd to the world, but that's okay. We don't mind looking odd. We aren't worried about the world standard. We're worried about the standard that's found in Scripture. Even things that sometimes seem spiritual and good can be rooted in things that aren't Scripture. And we have to be careful. Well, does everything have to come under the authority of the Bible? Yes. All things. Unless we want to find ourselves stumbling over Christ rather than being built upon Him. We could make a long list of things here. We could. We're not going to. As I've reread back through a summary of church history, I do this from time to time every few years and go back through the whole of church history. It's apparent where every split begins. It's when they skid away from God's word every time. When a church departs from the centrality of God's word, it departs from that sure foundation that is Christ. And it's never a good thing at all. When it comes to anything that we might build our foundation upon, we must measure it according to his word. If it doesn't pass that test, then it's not good for us as believers at all. And that brings us to the last point, God growing his garden back in Isaiah 28. He builds upon this idea, this sure foundation, with a parable about farming. This isn't advice for the farmer. Instead, this is instructions that should be very plain to anyone who's ever grown anything in the ground. As you can see, when he's reading this, he's kind of speaking rhetorically. Even those who don't farm can kind of pick up on the message. Look at verse 24, for instance. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? I mean, is the farmer just only ever plowing things? Is he opening up the ground all the time? No. Are there, you know, verse 25, when he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in, put in wheat in rows and barley in a proper place and emmer as the border? Basically, what is he saying? Do seeds not all have their proper place to go? Isn't that the truth? Absolutely. It's the truth. And if you're going to harvest those things, don't they have particular tools in which you should harvest them? Yes. Absolutely. There's a proper way to grow 
a product and farm that product and then harvest it. Absolutely there is. Well, if that's true, isn't there a proper way then to grow a believer in their faith? And if there is, then why don't we trust the one that Scripture says is doing that? Why don't we trust our Lord to do that growing? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, starting at verse five in the Corinthian church, there were some divisions and these divisions had to do with, you know, whose, whose camp are you in? Are you with Paul? Are you with Apollos or who you with? And Paul addresses that starting at verse five, first Corinthians chapter three. What then is Apollos? What is Paul servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he whose waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Looks like Paul has read Isaiah 28 as well. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this has to do with that foundation that we're building upon in our own lives, Christ being the foundation. We have this picture of what Paul is talking about or what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 28. Notice, Paul and Apollos can plant and water the seed, but only God decides how and when that seed will grow and at the rate at which that seed will grow. I think this is helpful if you're a parent here in the room to consider the faith of your children and you're maybe waiting for them to take off and become the next Billy Graham or something along those lines. The Lord decides how and when that's going to take place. And it's helpful for those of you who are children, which is all of us to one degree or another. Considering our own faith, we've all been there. You've seen a seed planted and watered. If you've been here in this church for any length of time, I hope that's the case, that a seed has been planted and watered. Hopefully that's being done in the home as well. God will bring that seed to maturity then. How he sees fit. And I think that's a comfort. It's a comfort to me as a pastor that I don't have to do any kind of special thing to make, to make it work. And it should be a comfort to us as parents because that's the same for us. The Lord is the one who does the growing. And if you go back to Isaiah 28, you see this. It's helpful, especially since we are so prone 
to take that little bitty towel and try to stretch it over our whole body, to take that thing that we should not be trusting in and to trust in it as if it can keep us warm and safe. This is essentially what all sin is. And so it's helpful for us to see that the Lord is the one doing the growing. Back in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, According to the grace of God's given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon that foundation. Let us take care how he who take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. We build upon the foundation that is Christ in us. Not only do we have that done as we're learning and taking in information in a church or whatever, but even over the course of our lives, we'll choose this and that to add to that foundation that we have. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be, you know, not so good. And I love how verses 14 and 15 are really a comfort to me because I feel like so many of the things that I've chosen to build upon my foundation have not been helpful. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, which that's good. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I think this is something that we can rest in, even when we make bad choices as believers. It doesn't disqualify us from Christ. He is still our foundation. And it could be that there are going to be times in our life that we are just completely burned down to that foundation. As believers, we wrestle with sin. There'll be many times in our lives when we're going to make bad choices. But He is the one who keeps us. And we'll escape, even if it's going to be as through fire, as He says here. It may be difficult, but He's going to keep us until the end. And so in conclusion... No matter how hard we try, whatever we try to cover ourselves with other than Christ is going to be found wanting. It will never suffice. And so let us, brothers and sisters, rest upon the sure foundation that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us show that to a lost world because we know that they're not resting upon anything sure at all. Let us show that sure foundation to them as well so that they can find the comfort and peace that we have in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, so many times, as ridiculous as it seems, we are trying to cover ourselves up. As you've said here, by taking lies and making them our refuge, by taking shelter in falsehood, by laying in a bed that is obviously too small, or by trying to cover up with blankets that are way too small for us. Lord, help us. We are even ridiculous in our best times. We are like sheep, and we need you, our shepherd. And so, Lord, please help us. Help us to obey you as we ought to. Teach us from your word what we should know about you and how we should behave, so that you, Lord Jesus, receive all the glory, and that the world would know that you are Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.